Hello, everyone. It's Friday, October 30th, and you're listening to Taiwanese Pro Ball by Ryan Chen. Day five of five for my daily uploads on this podcast. If you missed out, Monday was the final CPBL Chronicles of the regular season. Tuesday and Thursday, I chatted with five members of the CPBL English community about the upcoming Taiwan series. And Wednesday, basketball made its debut on the podcast as I introduced the Plus League here in Taiwan. I'm very excited to get to today's guest. Athletes spend hours upon hours on the court, on the field, or in the weight rooms getting physically conditioned to compete. But how many hours are they utilizing for their mental game? My guest today will help us get between the ears and explore just that. Please forgive the changes in sound as we were interrupted a couple times and had to change interview locations. Another high school classmate and good friend of mine on today's guest episode, I welcome Irene Oyang. Hey Ryan, this is Irene. Thanks for having me. Irene was a varsity badminton stud, undefeated in her three-year IASIS career as a doubles player, and played a little touch rugby, but now she's wrapping up her master's in sports, performance, and psychology at University of Denver. She's now working with uh, professional skiers and maybe building up a even bigger portfolio. So Irene, before we get into the expert knowledge, how do you stay active now? Well, before I moved to Denver, actually, I was a huge surfer, so I would surf every morning. Um, now moving to Denver, I've kind of obviously kind of landlocked and I've transitioned into more snowboarding and sometimes running now. Not my favorite, gotta admit. Not a lot of people's favorites, but that's just how it goes. <laughs> so what was the initial draw of this field of sports performance psychology for you? I think the initial draw was I've always recognized like mental performance as one of my weakest aspects as an athlete growing up in terms of like physical abilities. Like I was... I would say I was like pretty decent, but I was so inconsistent in the way I showed up, whatever sport that was, whether that was volleyball or badminton or even rugby, it was just so inconsistent. And that was all the mental aspect. So that kind of like where my interest stemmed from um, and moving into college, I took a sports psychology course and that was, it immediately like was everything I ever wanted to learn about learning psychology. So much of it is focused on you know, like what's wrong with people, like what's the mental health issue and the mental health aspect, which I'm not saying isn't important, it absolutely is, but I just felt myself being drawn more to the other aspect, which is how do we take people from being like at their norm and making them extraordinary is what I was very, very intrigued by. All right. So what is your uh, project on for your degree? Um, So our master's project is where we kind of develop our own theoretical orientation to performance excellence. And that sounds really confusing. So what essentially what it is, is we learn an extensive range of different theories in counseling and sports psychology. And we kind of draw upon the different theories and combine them to form our own views on what exactly bolsters performance excellence and what also results in performance breakdowns. So for mine specifically, I can go into a little bit. Mine is very much about focus. I'm very into flow. To me, flow is optimal performance and it requires total absorption in a task which is why I put like your ability to focus at the center of performance excellence. Hmm, Okay. Well, we'll get into that in a little bit for any kid out there, any young Irene, um, (laughs) how would you apply that skill and knowledge to a career or maybe not a career, any in your everyday life? Sports psychology and like mental skills training in general have been mostly applied solely to sports domains, but it's definitely expanding now. And nowadays it's also widely used in performing arts, like such as dance and music or high-risk occupations, like the military is one of our biggest contractors, also firefighters, and even now within the business realm. Like, so the thing is with mental skills training and sports psychology, 
it's so widely applicable. If you are somebody who wants to just understand your mind better and understand how to get your mind to work more consistently for you instead of against you, especially in high pressure situations, you can use sports psychology and apply that in any aspect of your life. Every athlete has their uh, own mental approach to be successful, but you kind of mentioned the project you're working on. And of course, I'm kind of curious, are there different like schools of thoughts or trains of thought when it comes to the psychological performance? Yeah, definitely. So like I mentioned, like with our different theoretical orientation. So like, let me first break this down really quick. People in the sports psych field, there is a divide between people who focus very much on the mental health side of things. And there are also people who focus very solely on performance. So there's that divide in our field. And then even amongst that, there's like different theoretical orientations that people draw from in different counseling theories, like I mentioned. So there's things such as like acceptance, commitment therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, even like integrative existential person center. So these are all different counseling theories. So I guess like when you say schools of thought, that's kind of, that's kind of what I immediately jumps to my mind is kind of where you come from as a consultant and like, what's your style? Like what's, what lens are you working through? Yeah. Don't be afraid to uh, layer it on. This podcast is for you to share all the information you're willing to and open to. We're all just learning here. Maybe look it up later. So I am personally more familiar with uh, team sports and this podcast will reflect that for the most part. But as someone who's played a lot of badminton and your surf is individualized, maybe as an individual sports person, what wisdom can you glean from the differences between team and individual sports? Couple of things that immediately jumped to mind, accountability, team cohesion, roles, leadership, and like efficacy, like collective efficacy versus like individual efficacy. So I can go into all of those a little bit. So like with accountability, it's really funny between like individual sports and team sports. Accountability on a team can work both ways. I've seen it where um, if you're on a team, you don't feel as accountable because you feel like if everybody's making mistakes. So you almost don't take ownership of when you make your own mistakes. And instead, like when somebody else makes a mistake, you might get mad at your teammates. Um, but I've also seen where players feel even more accountable because if they make a mistake, they feel like they're not just letting themselves down, they're letting their entire team down. So there's that part where it can play out in either way. A huge thing between team and individual sports is team cohesions. That kind of centers around like team values, like your ability to work together towards the goals, like whether or not the entire, entire team even shares the same goal and they're working towards it together. That's another thing developing that healthy team dynamic and like establishing, Hey, these are our values as a team. And this is the goal we're all collectively working towards is super important on a team. Role clarification is also super important on a team because in my eyes, I think everybody has a different leadership role. Obviously there's like very outspoken leaders, which I think is what most people immediately think of when you think of a leader on the team, like a team captain who is like very directive and instructive and like, cheers their teammates on and they're, like they're very outspoken but there's actually so many different leadership roles on the team that you can be like there's leaders that lead by example like they're the people that show up every single day and just grind and they just do all the work they're always present they're always dedicated they never cut corners like they're leading by example too there's also people who are just super dependable like they show up for their teammates they motivate them you know they kind of are able to cheer their teammates up when maybe like the pressure's on and they see their teammates crumbling. 
in that sense, role clarification is super important in like not just knowing what role you think you play on the team, but also making sure that that's the role that your teammates see you playing out on the team. And then I also mentioned collective efficacy. So this one's like a very technical jargon kind of term, but collective efficacy is essentially their collective belief that they can achieve a certain goal together. So this plays out differently because like everybody on the team together has to believe that them as a team, as a cohesive unit can attain a certain goal as opposed to on individual sports, it's just you. And like whether or not you have your own self-belief in that is it looks a little different. So I don't know if that answered your question, but let me know if there's anything I can also clarify. No, that was great. Can you imagine at the professional level, a team with not a lot of cohesion still being able to succeed and be champions be the best team in the league for any given year or is that at the professional level just inconceivable I think at the professional level to me that's inconceivable like obviously no team is perfect but essentially what you look at is like when the pressure's on like does it create rifts in the team and if there are rifts that are being created during high pressure situations then a lot of times like they won't function well they won't be like a well-oiled machine Well, speaking of pressure, besides the domestic competitions in European football, almost all the other team sports around the world have a regular season and a playoffs in various forms to determine their champions. And so throughout that process of a playoffs, how does the mental side of the game change and the added pressures as you go further along? Yeah, so I can kind of break that down. So there's a concept in sports I call periodization. It's also, I think, a commonly used concept in like strength and conditioning. So periodization is essentially kind of your training changes throughout the season to get you prepared to perform at your peak at a certain time. For instance, with mental skills training, you want to start working with the players, usually off season, like when their season Mm -hmm. hasn't even started, you want to make initial contact with them. This is where a lot of the rapport building happens. You're introducing yourself, you're gaining their trust, you're kind of assessing the needs of the team or of its individuals than the needs of the individuals. And essentially what you do is during this time is you come up with like a mental skills training program for them, like based on whatever you assess that their needs are. And throughout their season, maybe going into preseason, you would periodize their mental skills training. So like maybe some of the skills they want to work on are like concentration, self-talk, relaxation, any of that. And so like you would do these in high volumes low intensity so this is like you're just learning the skills in a very safe low pressure situation and you're doing it over and over again so you get familiarity with this skill and then obviously throughout the season as the season progresses um, they start having games and then during the games this is where the intensity kind of ramps up a little bit and this is where to correspond with that the mental skills training would drop in volume so like maybe they don't do as many reps with their mental skills training but it becomes higher intensity in that there's more pressure now. And going off into playoffs, obviously, it's like at this point, they should be very familiar with all their mental skills because they've done it so many times. Like they've done it in no pressure situations, low pressure situations, and then like higher pressure situations. And now going into playoffs, like obviously the pressure is getting a lot higher. And now it's very low volume and very high intensity now. So by the time they get to the playoffs, essentially what they're trying to do is we're trying to get them ready for their peak mental performance to align with their peak physical performance, hopefully at that point. I see. 
And I've read somewhere about it, but now I want to hear from you. How do you explain athletes choking under pressure? So athletes choking under pressure, essentially, okay, I'm going to come from my own theoretical orientation, like Ooh, where I'm saying okay. focus is the point of performance excellence. So an athlete choking under pressure could be, they're obviously not in the present moment. They're not focused on the task at hand. Instead, what's happening for them is they're almost like overanalyzing all these things. They're worrying about the future or they're stuck in the past on a mistake and they're just letting the pressure get to them. So their focus is not where it needs to be. And in order for an athlete to perform, their focus needs to be at the right place at the right time, every time. I see. So could it be possible that someone like focuses too hard and get out of their routines and get out of their habits and practices? Absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of times athletes overanalyze, like I've, I've had it too. Like when you go into a competition or like a game at that point, everything you do should be so natural. It should be automatic because you've done this like hundreds, if not thousands of times, this should be automatic. But sometimes what the pressure does to a person is instead of just letting things happen naturally, like they've practiced, they start to overthink and overanalyze. And now they're focusing on their movements or they're focusing on their thoughts, which takes away from the automaticity that you want in these competition settings. Yeah, automaticity. What a good word. So speaking of the competition, that leads us to what's currently going on in the fall, the Chinese Professional Baseball League, the CPBL here in Taiwan. We'll be heading to the championship soon enough in the Taiwan series. So maybe how does the intensity of playing the same team for one whole series in, in our case, seven games? changing the minds of the competitors? That's a good question. I think that it does vary player to player, but I think some of the challenges that some of the players might face in terms of what you're saying, like playing the same team for a series, if you're like keeping score throughout the series and you are not able to stay in the present moment, for example, maybe you lost the previous game and you haven't fully let that game go and just like reset yourself and start fresh that day, then that could seriously hinder somebody's performance because they're not having a present moment focus anymore. I've watched like interviews from Kobe Bryant where he's like, oh, like if I lost a game, like I will stay as long as I can and like make sure that I process everything before I even like step back on the court again the next day. So that like the next day, you've already processed everything about the previous game and you're now refocused on the present moment you're not still thinking about the past. I see. In a similar vein, one of the more recent movies out of Taiwan was of the 1930s high school baseball team, Kano. One popular line that was in the movie is that the coach said, I want you guys to play to not be defeated. Your mindset is not about winning or losing. It's to not emotionally have a letdown against the other team to play to your max effort and with all your focus on the game until the very end it's not quite the same because the word defeat is still in the saying i'm yeah. not going to be defeated here i think essentially what that phrase is alluding to is kind of this concept of like being outcome focused versus like task focused a lot of athletes um especially in games like a lot of times they become very outcome focused and like you know obviously it's hard not to like the score will affect you you know, your mindset and your emotion, like it will have an emotional impact, but also like recognizing that you have to shift your focus away from the potential outcome. Because if you're looking at the score and that's all you're thinking about and you're like, oh, we're going to lose, that's going to impact the way you play. And like essentially shifting that to a task focus is like, what is the task at hand right now? Because 
you can't control the outcome. You can't control whether or not your team, like you can't control whether you win or lose, but what you can control in that moment is how you play and where your focus is going to be. Now I process that a lot better. Is there any psychology of being possibly the clinching team where on the other hand, you're as the team facing elimination, or maybe they should both take it as best they can take it the same way. I think they should both play very task focused, but for both teams, because if you, you've seen teams where they have a huge lead, they become overconfident and then they let that lead slip. And then the other team ends up overtaking them and winning. That's what happens when you become outcome focused is like, you're already focused on the future of what's happening. So if the team was like, Oh, we, we've already won in their head. They're no longer focused on the task. That's where their lead could slip a lot because the other team is now like, perhaps they're still very task focused and now they're able to catch up because they're focusing on what they're supposed to be doing. Do you get a kick in enjoyment out of watching really high level sports being played with a lot of high stakes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I actually recently kind of got a little more into watching baseball through some of the work that I was doing. And I was watching the major league baseball, like the playoff series with the Dodgers. Cause that's the team that a lot of my friends support. So they were, they were in a seven game series and I think they were down three to one. Yeah. And then they came back and, you know, like they came back for the next four games and then won the series. So yeah, that was definitely very intense uh intense moment for me and even more intense moment for a lot of my friends and I kind of just got like very wrapped up in all the emotions and excitement of that um because they just came back like night after night <laughs> mm-hmm. you kind of mentioned what a similar school is self-care and self-improvement of course people during the pandemic it's especially important to take care of yourselves physically and health-wise but what are also some habits and practice that we can improve our everyday lives in the psychological sense um, so two things immediately jump to mind and these are just like things I implement myself too. very easy, like super, super fast. The first one is gratitude. And that sounds, I understand that sounds like very cheesy. Like people are like, Oh, you're, yeah, your gratitude practice. But actually there's so much research backing it up that says how gratitude practice can improve your mental health. It rewires your brain to see more positives. It could improve your sleep quality and also just if we're speaking like in relation to like performance, it can actually build your resilience as an athlete. So gratitude is one that I am very big on. And I think a lot of people like do repetitive gratitude. It's like, oh, I'm help, like, you know, I'm grateful for like family and friends, which is great. But I think what's more important is that as you really reflect on your day, you really feel grateful for it. It's not just going through the motions of like, oh yeah, this is like what I'm grateful for today. No, like you have to think about little moments that hold significant meaning for you and actually reflect on that and like write it down or however you do your gratitude practice. And the other one that I'm big on, and it's also like trendy thing right now is mindfulness. Growing up in Taiwan, obviously like mindfulness is kind of something I grew up with in my family because we have a Buddhist background. So there was a lot of meditation, but yeah, mindfulness really can improve your focus and intention regulation. And contrary to what a lot of people believe, the sole purpose of mindfulness practice isn't to become more calm and relaxed, but it is a great byproduct of being able to improve your focus and regulate your attention. And it also helps you increase awareness and your ability to distance yourself from your thoughts and emotions. Um, and I can explain that a little bit. It's, there's a technical term for it called cognitive diffusion. 
So with mindfulness practice, what it teaches you is to, first of all, be aware of everything and accept your present moment experience, whatever it is, the good, the bad, accept it non-judgmentally and be able to distance yourself from it by recognizing like, hey, I noticed that I'm feeling anxious right now or I noticed that my mind is telling me that I'm having these thoughts. It's that language you use where you distance yourself. It's not just saying like, oh, I'm anxious right now. It's saying I'm noticing that I'm feeling a little anxious. So if you're able to kind of distance yourself from negative thoughts and emotions, they don't have as much hold over you. Those are my two big ones. Those are great. I mean, of course, you smartly mentioned mindfulness is trending, and it is. And that additional explanation is very helpful. Yeah. I also want to mention, and like, this is a misconception with a lot of people too. They solely see mindfulness as just like sitting down and meditating. Mindfulness can be implemented in so many ways. You could eat mindfully. Like people can, you can just like take a cookie and engage all your five senses and just kind of examine like, what do you see? What do you hear? What do you, what does it taste like? What does it feel like? What does it look like? And just really like be present with it, with your five senses. Those are all little moments where you can incorporate mindfulness into your life. It's not always about just like sitting down for like five, 10, 20 or 30 minutes and meditating. Cause I understand that people like develop their practices differently and it doesn't have to all look one way. Like, so like for me, like a lot of times I can't sit for 30 minutes. So I find like little moments to be mindful as opposed to like sitting down for an extended period of time. Could you share with us a story of your own work in the field with a client who was able to uh, take strides to better their performance psychologically? I have worked pretty closely with this one athlete for a couple months now. I came I started working with him mid-season and his previous season he ha- it, he had an exceptional season. Um I think he won an a, like some sort of award and this year he started placing a lot of expectations and pressure on himself to perform in the same way. And essentially that's what took him out of his focus is the pressure that he was putting on himself and like not being able to manage his own expectations. And so his, he started off quite poorly in the season actually. And I came in mid season and I honestly felt a lot of pressure on myself too, in terms of like, I was being brought in and they were expecting me to almost essentially fix him, which I highly disagree with coming in as a mental performance consultant. I'm not here to fix your athlete. I'm here to better them and help them improve and help them understand their their own minds more. This is not like a bandaid solution. It's not like I can just slap a bandaid on and he's like, okay, you're good to go. Now you can perform. So I came into this situation like with a lot of pressure too. And um, I really just, had to put faith into my own training and just be like, you know, this works and you know that what you're doing and just worked with him, met him where he was as a client, like really being able to assess his needs and who he was and understand him as a person and not just as an athlete. And throughout the later half of the season, he actually, we all started seeing a lot of changes in him. Um, His performance improved significantly, but more so what I'm more focused on is When I watched him in games, he was a different player. Like, whereas before, if his, like, if he makes one mistake, he became wrapped up in that mistake for the rest of the game. And you could visibly see it in his performance and in just his entire body language while he was out in the game. And after we started working together, all of a sudden he would bounce back from mistakes. He would be able to refocus. You know, you could see that he was, these mistakes no longer bothered him. Not that it didn't bother him, but he was able to, kind of just 
put it aside and like let it be and just refocus his attention and his like that's essentially what got him to what got him to perform as well as he did throughout the season was his ability to refocus using these mental skills that was one of like one of the big success stories and like now his season's ended and his stats from the season actually were even better than last season's and he had an exceptional last season so before we head out, is there any standout story or individual that you've come across in your studies that was particularly interesting or memorable? Yeah, so one of the individuals that I thought was very memorable was an Austrian skydiver called Felix Baumgartner. And he actually was, I don't know if you've heard, but a couple of years ago, he was trying to break a world record with a supersonic hmm. descent from 23 miles up, which is essentially like on the edge of outer space. I kind of recall. Yeah, and so he is a very well-known skydiver, has made like thousands of jumps. And when it came to this jump, obviously there were a lot of inherent risks with him breaking his world record with like hitting supersonic speed and all of that. But what actually was the biggest mental block for him, it turns out, was claustrophobia. Hmm. Um, so Felix, because of this jump, he had to wear a pressurized suit that severely constricted like his sense of sight and all of that and like his movement and mobility. He started having panic attacks in this suit and he, hmm. he almost like backed out of the entire jump because of this, because with all the risks involved, you can't be having a panic attack, like falling from 23 miles up in space. Hmm. So what had happened was they called in Dr. Michael Gervais. He's a sports psychologist who specializes in a lot of high performance and extreme sports to work with Felix. The work he did with Felix was centered around, you know, kind of examining why he wanted to do this. And Felix identified the reason for wanting to do this jump as wanting to go somewhere, pushing the boundaries where no one has ever been before. And Dr. Michael Gervais also worked with him on self-talk, which he identifies as like the source of confidence in people. Um, so he also taught Felix some relaxation, like self-regulating techniques such as combat breathing or deep breathing in order to calm himself down and using self-talks as a mental skill to build his confidence and self-esteem and putting him increasingly in more high pressure situations and while using these techniques to kind of regulate himself until he could eventually feel confident in his own pressurized suit. So eventually, obviously, Felix made the jump. He's alive. He broke the world record. He was traveling at more than supersonic speed, which is extremely dangerous because during these times, if you're not fully in control, you could spin uncontrollably into what's called a flat spin, which is where your speed is exceeding like 600 miles an hour. And the flat spin can actually cause like headache, shortness of breath, vision failure, even mental confusion, unconsciousness, or even burst eyeballs. So obviously the stakes are super high in this situation and him needing to have that control while having claustrophobia in his spacesuit was absolutely essential. So this is a story that I think was like really, really stood out to me and where mental skills came into play in like a high critical situation and was able to contribute to like breaking this world record. Wow, that is an incredible story. And thanks to the help of your peers in the professional field, he's able to accomplish that. That's awesome. Yeah, it was absolutely incredible moment. Thanks again to Irene for coming on the podcast and thank you, the listener, for joining us. That concludes a very special episode of Taiwanese Pro Ball. I'm Ryan Chen and enjoy the weekend.